You're listening to the Third Cup of Coffee podcast. Good day, podcast listeners. This is Randy Bolander on the Third Cup of Coffee podcast. We are glad to have you with us today, this beautiful day, on the eastern frontier of Kansas. In fact, as I look out the window, I can see Missouri from my house. I really can. I can actually see Missouri, but I am safely on the Kansas side, having made a trip today to the Kansas DMV. If you have never been to the Kansas DMV, let me just say, you don't know what you're missing. It's, it is a picture of efficiency. This is how smoothly it went. I took my kids to school, dropped them off at 8 a.m. Then I drove to the place to have my title examined, which took about 45 minutes. They do an inspection if you're bringing a vehicle in from another state. All the inspection means is that the numbers on the title match the numbers on the car. They don't care if you have three bald tires and are missing a door. Kansas will slap a license on it. They'll collect their fees and they'll license that thing. So that's that's nice. You don't have to deal with all the uh, safety inspections, as I make bunny quotes. You get that done, then you go to the DMV. I go into the DMV and they have this beautiful system where you text ahead, you tell them you're coming. It's like telling your mom you're coming over for coffee. They make up space for you. They're ready for you. Those of you in the Republic of California and other foreign countries who talk about going to the DMV for all day, here's your problem. You have a bunch of people in the same spot at the same time. Now, if you spread those people out or gave them more spots to go to, the line wouldn't be out the wazoo. But that's why you end up spending the whole day there. In Kansas, you text them, they give you a spot, and you come at that time. Ten minutes from the moment I walked in the front door, I'm standing at the little plexiglass sneeze guard thing. And the lady's telling me, oh, welcome to the Kansas DMV, because she's friendly. And then she tells me, these papers are not in order. I am missing a Form 32175. Well, I, I get a little flustered. I've never had a 32175 before, and she explains what it is, and she hands it to me, and, and uh, I go out, and I think I get it, and I come back, and, and she says, oh, no, no, that's, that's not quite right here. And so I, have to, so I have to leave the DMV twice. I am still out the door by 10.30 a.m. with my license plate. When the time comes that the bridge, the church I'm pastoring, is ready to implement a system to check children into a nursery, I'm going straight to the DMV because those people have it figured out. Speaking of the bridge, we are meeting this week live and in person down at the barn at River Bend in Peculiar, Missouri. It's not our permanent home, but we do like to visit. We are looking for a permanent home right now in the Kansas City area. But we can do this. And we met there two weeks ago, had a fantastic time. The barn is just a perfect enclosure for this kind of thing. So live band, live worship. If you are interested, you can go to thebridgekc.church and get directions. We'll be down there at 1030 a.m. It's pretty dry. Come on down. And hopefully we will not have the wacky windstorm that blew through as we finished last time. We were there two weeks ago and uh, barely got to the amen and this weird wind shear came through. But what are the chances of that happening twice? Almost, almost none. What I have for you today is audio from last Sunday. And last Sunday, I taught on the idea of lies that we believe about our neighbors, lies about our neighbors. You think about it, that's a whole other universe over there. Just across the, the hedge or whatever stops the neighbors from encroaching on your territory, it's a different world. They live completely differently. 
And so it is an interesting look at our neighbors and what the Bible says about them and how we relate to them. Hope you find it helpful. Hope you find it challenging. And I hope your neighbors find that it makes you a more warm-hearted person and a more welcoming person to them. This is recorded last week at the bridge, Lies About Our Neighbors. Enjoy. Well, good to see everybody. Um, If you have your Bibles, turn to Luke 10. Uh, We're going to dive in this morning. We have talked a lot in the last couple of weeks about uh, the nature of church as we studied the book of Acts. We've talked a lot about our inner life, uh, both when Daniel Grenz spoke uh, two weeks ago and when I spoke last week. And we're going to turn outward a little bit this week and talk about what might be a little bit easier to talk about, which is other people. Now, hopefully we're going to do it in a very honorable way because uh, Jesus loves your neighbors. And I know that sounds like the most simplistic Sunday school thing that we can say, but it is profoundly true. Uh, Those of you that have walked with the Lord for a while, you know what it's like to feel the sense of the Lord's pleasure over you. You know what it's like to uh, feel near to him and feel his affection for you. And sometimes we, we tend to forget that the Lord has the exact same affection for your neighbor across the street who may or may not even know him. Your Lord loves your neighbor just like he loves you. And it's exceptionally important that we talk about our neighbors for kind of multiple reasons in this season. One, of course, we are responsible for our neighbor. That's not a new idea. Even if we don't always implement it well, we know it. We're responsible for our neighbor. We find it all through Scripture. But I think increasingly in the season that we're going into, we are going to need our neighbors. Now, in an election year, it's easy to think of uh, people and politics and culture as uh, the enemy and as divided. You know, I drive up and down um, Row Avenue every day taking my kids to school. And increasingly, I see more and more election signs. And once in a while, you'll see competing election signs uh, next door to one another. And you, you look at that and you think, boy, I wonder how the backyard barbecue is this year. You know, that's, is that cause a significant tension? Because it's easy to look at people who look at issues differently than we do as the enemy. Let me explain. There is an enemy, but it's not your neighbor. No matter what campaign sign they put in their yard, there is a third entity in the boxing ring, and he wants to beat on both of us. And if he succeeds in dividing people, he doesn't really care who wins the White House. The election itself is a battle, but the devil is waging a war against all of us. And in a deeply divided country, more deeply divided even than it is today, even gathering in the way we're gathering right now could eventually be a luxury. And we need to start bridging connections with our neighbors. Can you imagine if your neighborhood functioned as a church in some respect. How different would your last nine months have been? Your your months of uh, quarantining or, or huddling in place, how different would that have been if your neighborhood, if there had been Christian fellowship across the back fence and are all around you, how differently your life would be? Now, we'll never get there if we don't consider our neighbors in different ways than we do. Now, we've got got a bit of a mystical view of our neighbors, of what their life is like, how things happen in that uh, fence across the street, what what goes on over there. You may know your neighbors really well, or you may not know them at all. But even if you do know them, you know that at the end of the day, they go into their house just 50 feet away from yours, and it's like an alternative universe over there. Like, 
They watch different things on TV. They have different things in their refrigerator and they use different. So it's a different world just across the fence. And in every neighborhood, there's that one neighbor that makes all of the other neighbors wonder. And some of you are thinking that you may have been that neighbor at times. I know we have been that neighbor at times. There's always that one that people kind of think about a little bit. And small towns tend to accentuate this because everybody knows everybody else. Between my sophomore and junior years of college, I did an internship in a little town called Langdon, Kansas. If you don't know where Langdon is, it's about 30 miles southwest of Hutchison. If you don't know where Hutchison is, it's straight west of Emporia. And if you don't know where Emporia is, you will never find Langdon. Just, just delete it from your memory. It's just west central Kansas. That's all you really need to know. Langdon is six square blocks. Literally, that's it. It is a commerce-free zone. Uh, I don't think that was their intention, but there's just no stores. There's nothing you can buy. At one point, there was a gas station. That's all there ever was. There was never even a grain elevator in Langdon. And when I lived there in the late 80s, the gas station had been closed, from what everybody told me, for about 15 years. But even though it was closed, every day, the guy who owned the gas station, Jack, who was quite elderly, would go to the gas station. The pumps were gone. There was nothing to buy. But he would go to the gas station, and he would open the door, and he would sit out in the front on a crate all day, just like he had done when the gas station was still operating. Now, everybody in the town would tell you that Jack was incredibly wealthy. You would never know it looking at it, because the gas station was a wreck, and, and Jack was kind of a wreck, to be honest. And I remember asking people, how do you know that he's very wealthy? And everybody in the town was convinced Jack had invented Dr. Pepper. And when I pressed for a little more details, because I'm just that guy that goes, well, how do we know he invented Dr. Pepper? They all said the same thing. Don't you notice? It's all that he drinks. That was the extent of the logic by which they were convinced. Like by that, by that understanding, I invented coffee, you know, but the whole town, all six blocks, word on the street, both streets, was that Jack was very wealthy. Now, before I told this story, I did do the research. Jack did not invent Dr. Pepper. Dr. Pepper was invented about 100 years earlier in Texas, and he wasn't that old. Everything they knew about Jack was a lie. And so this morning, I want to talk about lies that we believe about our neighbors. Now, you probably don't think that one of your neighbors invented Dr. Pepper, but there probably are things that you have in your mind about your neighbor that isn't necessarily true. Now, when you look at Luke 10, it is a busy chapter. There's a lot that goes on there. Jesus sends out his 72 ministry interns to go out and do ministry. If you study the ministry style of Jesus, it's very interesting. You know, Christianity has a reputation of being very controlling. Jesus was not. And he just sent these folks out to go out and do ministry. And then he actually tells them how to deal with people who do not receive the ministry that they bring. He says, just shake the dust off your feet and move on to the next place. The healthiest ministry practice that we can develop is the ability really to shake our feet, uh, the dust off our feet, move to the next place. Jesus actually speaks significantly about a number of cities that will not receive the message, but he still tells them to, no, go on out there and uh, share the message anyway. Eventually, all the interns return, and they've got all these crazy stories of casting out demons. And Jesus tells them in so many words, don't rejoice that demons flee from you. Rejoice that you actually have freedom from the evil one. And then about verse 25, he is approached by a lawyer who has a point of clarification. This guy wants to know a detail. 
Most people who press into Jesus for more details about following him are looking for a way out of serving him. Like it's a way of expressing a lack of wholeheartedness. And really, that's what we find here. Luke, starting at 25, we'll read at 29. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall we do to inherit eternal life? And he said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, you have answered correctly. Do this, and you will live. But he, referring to the lawyer now, he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, who is my neighbor? What a phrase, desiring to justify himself, desiring to check that off the list, to cover his bases, he wanted to know, who is my neighbor? Just tell me the bare minimum that I need to accomplish, and I'll do that, and then I can move on to whatever is next. He had a desire to do the least thing he needed to do in order to be counted as righteous. Do you remember when you started your first job, whatever that job was, if you were working the fry machine or you were uh, uh, whatever you were doing, what, when you started, you, you know, like 15, 16 years old, you wanted to be the best at whatever that job was. You wanted to make the best fries. If that's, I mean, you, they were, you were excited about it. It was, it was a job and you wanted to do it well. And over time, because you were young and because it was something kind of benign, you got a little lazier and it wasn't fun anymore. And you began to think, what's the least amount I can do to kind of get by with this job? You forgot the joy of being fully committed to what you were doing. When you ask Jesus, what is the bare minimum that I have to do? It is a sign you have completely lost the joy of following him. When you get to where you're saying, what, Lord, what is the minimum that you require? You've completely missed the point. And by doing less, you receive less. The young ruler was setting himself up for what I call the minimum Jesus experience. I don't want to be somebody who is asking for the minimum Jesus experience. And I don't want to be a church that stretches after the minimum Jesus that we can find. I want to ask his first question, what do we do to inherit eternal life? Then I want to run hard after that answer, even if it takes me into places that are uncomfortable. Now, when the lawyer presses the question of what, what's the minimum I need to do? What's the minimum Jesus experience? That sets the stage for Jesus to tell a story that dismantles some lies about our neighbor. Lies that when we believe them, lead us to the minimum experience rather than the maximum with him. Some of us are experiencing minimal Jesus. We're actually experiencing less of him than we could, and it is based in the lies that we believe about our neighbors. Let's look at uh, verses 30 to 37, and this is in, in Luke 10, and I'll, I'll read all this, and then we'll go back. Jesus replied, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place, he saw him and he passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and he bound up his wounds pouring on oil and wine. And then he set him on his own animal and he brought him to an inn and he took care of him. 
And the next day he took up two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper saying, take care of him. Whatever more you spend, I will repay when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? He said, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. I want to give you three lies that we believe about our neighbor and, and talk about what the truth really is about him. Lie number one is that our neighbors are just like us. They're just like us. We tend to think of neighbors as people, uh, groups of people who are similar, especially kind of in the suburbs where all the houses are the same. There's a couple of different floor plans. And maybe many people have lived a similar trajectory. They went to college. They worked hard. They raised their kids. They retired. They played golf. And you think those are groups of neighbors. But when Jesus went looking for a neighbor to talk about, to reach out to this person who had been beaten up, he searched high and low across the socioeconomic spectrum. He asked the priest, he asked the Levite, and then the Samaritan, apparently none whose lives really perfectly matched up with the poor man laying on the side of the road. And the challenge before them was that he was not one of them, yet he was still in need. In fact, he wasn't just different. He was somewhat undesirable to the one who really proved to be the neighbor. It is far easier to relate to people who are just like us. We all know that. People who are interested in things that we're interested in and who are on the life station that we are in. Now, Kelsey and I have found ourselves in a bit of an odd life station because we are, uh, most of our friends are becoming empty nesters and uh, our nest will not be empty for a long time. And so sometimes you kind of enter a social system and you go, boy, how do I fit here? Because not everybody is exactly like me. People who are like us are easier to relate to because people who are like us, and it's the same of you, make us feel like we make sense. That means we determine who our neighbor is based on less on who is in need and more is on who we need to be our neighbor. Our neighbors in 2020 are less like us than we would ever imagine. The homogenized world that many of us grew up in and even knew 15 or 20 years ago is disappearing suddenly. Our neighbors think, act, and look very differently than we do. And because of that, sometimes they don't feel like our neighbors anymore. Just a little glimpse at how life is changing radically, how different of a world that we live in just over the last 20 years. From 2007 to 2017, the Muslim population in the United States grew by 30%. 30% in 10 years increase in the Muslim. You are far more likely to have Muslim neighbors than you, you were just 10 years ago by a factor of you know, 30%. Many of us uh, grew up in very Caucasian settings. Not everybody, but, but many of us. And we are 20 years into a 50-year growth pattern among Latinos that will see them grow from 36 million to over 100 million. They will triple over a 50-year period. And if you think our neighborhoods are starting to look differently than they did, that only scratches the surface because even the ones who look differently than the people who you might have grown up with, even the ones that look like you think differently than they did. In the last 14 years, support for same-sex marriage has doubled. In 14 years, 14 years is not that long. The non-Christian religions of the world that have traditionally struggled in the American context are flatlining with the exception of Muslim and Hindu that are growing. But no religions are growing as fast as atheism 
or as stated agnosticism. Increasingly, our neighbors are just checking out. And Christianity, which many of us grew up as knowing the baseline, that was the standard, even if people didn't live it out, they, they kind of knew what they thought the truth was, actually dropped 8% in seven years from 2007 to 2014. And the younger our neighbors are, the more differently they think than we do. I'm in my 50s, and I'm discovering that I haven't changed my mind about a whole lot of things in the last 20 years. I just, you know, you get to a point where you kind of think, you know, where you have, you don't have it all figured out, but you don't change your mind very often. And when you do change your mind, you do it after a long period of thinking, especially on a significant issue. But one out of three men in their 20s state that they have changed their mind on an important issue based on something they saw on social media. 30% of young people look at a phone, it's a two by two inch square of a picture with a little text on it, and they go, I got to think about this differently. Now, I'm not saying that they are less right than we are about anything. It's just, you know, maybe we've been thinking about it the wrong way. My point is they think about things differently than we do. Our neighbors are much more likely to be of a different ethnicity, to have different thoughts on social issues, to be of a different religion, and at more than any other time in our lives to make decisions differently than many of us do. And we are so close to taking the path of the priest or the Levite who walk by someone in real need because we look at them and they're not quite like us. If we're going for that full Jesus experience, not just the partial experience that the young ruler was asking about, if we want to be the full Jesus to our neighbor, then we've got to lean into that even when they don't look like us. Because it is a lie that our neighbors are all just like us. They are different, but they are our neighbors. And for the full Jesus experience, we've got to have the full neighbor experience with them. It's a lie to think that they look like us and that they're all like us. Lie number two is uh, one that we, we believe sometimes because they tell us and also because it's just easier to believe. And that lie is our neighbors are fine. They're fine. Now, we, we're talking about lies about our neighbors, but this is maybe a lie from our neighbor. If you want to hear a lie, ask your neighbor, how are you? And they will, will tell you probably two things. One, oh, we're busy. Everybody's busy. It's a badge of honor. It's an embarrassment not to be busy. Uh, you may ask them what they're busy with. They might not be busy, but everybody wants to be busy. You want to identify as busy. And the second thing they'll tell you is they're fine. Let me tell you, they might be busy. They are probably not fine. Jesus described this man laying by the side of the road. And he described him. Did he go over and look at him and say, he's fine? No, he wasn't fine. He said a man was coming down from Jerusalem to Jericho, fell among robbers who stripped him, beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Half dead is incompatible with fine. You can't be both. And our neighbors, apart from Jesus, are at least half dead. One of the buzzwords of marketing for years has been um, natural. If something is natural, we consider it as inherently good, right? Natural honey, natural sugar, natural grains. When things are called natural, they are considered perfect and they are considered good. Having grown up close to nature, I kind of find that a little bit laughable because there are all kinds of things of nature that are not healthy. Gravity is natural, but gravity causes a lot of deaths. Um, uh, things like hemlock, is, it's a natural plant. 
but Socrates drank hemlock tea as a way of, of killing him. And so there are things that are natural that are not good for us. I'll get back to that in a second. When people die, that's often said it's of natural causes. We are a melting pot in this nation, and we're all under the same heat and the same pressure, and the overarching American experience is one that does not admit defeat or fear or pain. And so because of that, when we are asked, we say we are fine. And those neighbors that we've just learned this morning think very differently than us, share a common thread with every human being on the earth, and that is that as a human being in their natural state, remember natural, which we thought was always good for us, in their natural state, they are not fine. And ironically, one of the reasons we are not fine is that in our natural state, God has put within us the understanding that there is more to this life than we are living. So no matter what they look like or what they think like, the Ecclesiastes 3.11 principle applies to them. And the Bible says that God has set eternity in their hearts. What, no matter what they believe, they've got that sense of timelessness within them. And it, it causes a dissonance because that verse goes on to say, yet that man will not find out the work which God has done from the beginning even to the end. In other words, eternity is set in their hearts, and they know it's bigger than them, and they're trying to figure out what their place is in that timeline. Your neighbor, no matter what their ethnicity or their religious affiliation, their political bend, or their whatever, shares this with you. Deep in their heart and deep in your heart, there is a realization that you will not live forever, yet God has a bigger plan, and, and you wonder how you fit into that. If eternity is set in the hearts of men and women, then there is a desire to work that out and figure out what eternity looks like for them. They may come to us with different ideas, but they share that one thing. Who am I in the grand scheme of things? And can I live my life in such a way to transcend the 70 or 80 years that I'm given? It is a fearful thing to live a finite life aware of infinity. And it is not fine. It's troubling. The man laying by the side of the road was not fine. Your neighbors are not fine. And as a believer, you have a knowledge and experience of Jesus that can reach their fears and give them their space in eternity if you choose to be a neighbor to them. Because you're wanting to be the neighbor that Jesus is calling you to be. If you pursue the full Jesus, Jesus experience, it's going to mean that they get a chance to understand how their not fineness, their, their uh, uh, limited life with the idea that eternity is in their hearts, how you reconcile all of that. It's a universal thing. Romans 3.23 says, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Even if they don't understand fully what the glory of God is, they, they've got a sense of what sin is. They've got a sense of iniquity. They've got a sense of something they've done wrong. They know about it. And they may say they're busy and they're fine, but they're tired and they're finite. And they are being driven to the brink by their own natural desires. Again, totally natural, but they lead them to do wrong. They don't lead to life. James 1.15 says, then desire, natural desire, when it has been conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Now, if honesty were practiced over the fence with your neighbor, you might not ask that neighbor how they're doing. 
because they might tell you and it might take a while to unpack. And it's very complicated. And in all honesty, if we don't have the, the hours to put into it, them saying they're fine and us believing it is kind of a dance we do where we actually lie to one another. How are you? I don't really want you to tell me. I'm fine. Okay, and we're good. They lie to us and we pretend to believe it because it's less messy. And my question to you is, is that love? Is that really love? When you know someone you love is not fine, do you ever downplay their hurt? Do you ever put aside their pain? You know, if you're a parent, sometimes you come home late at night, you've got a, a little one, maybe you've been out at a meeting and, and you walk by and you hear uh, tears coming through that door. And you open that door and maybe your eight-year-old is struggling with something and they're crying. You know they are not fine. And you ask them, is everything okay? And between sobs, they say, yes. Do you say, okay, good night, and shut that door and walk away? Of course not. You press and you encourage and you go and you sit and you invest the time. Out of compassion, you go there. Good neighbors. I'm, this is challenging me in a great way. Good neighbors go there. Good churches go there. We don't express the full Jesus unless we go there. And nobody's interested in the half Jesus experience. Our neighbors, aware of eternity and unsure of what to do with it, how they fit into God's plan, are not fine. And they're worth the time to get to know and build equity with and listen to until they trust us enough to tell us, I'm not fine. Lies about our neighbors, number one, they're just like us. Number two, they are fine. And the third lie that we tell ourselves about our neighbors is maybe they're just beyond hope. Now, you'll notice there's a dissonance between the second and the third lie. We both believe they're fine because it excuses our inaction. And we also believe that they're beyond hope because it excuses our lack of action if we're wrong about them being fine. Lord, they're either fine or they're too far gone. I'm not quite sure. They're somewhere in there. And as a result of them being either fine or too far gone, I'm absolved of all need to stop. The truth lies between those two lies. They're not fine and they're not beyond hope. It's just that right now hope is beyond them. In Luke 10, Jesus details how the Samaritan, the surprising figure in this whole drama, extends help to one that others thought might have been beyond help. Remember, Jesus says he's half dead. And the Samaritan himself was busy. Bible says that as he journeyed, there was no recreational travel in Bible times. People just didn't jump in the car and go for a drive. You might go for a short walk, but you wouldn't travel intentionally on this road if you didn't have somewhere to go. He had purpose. And when you walk with a purpose, when you're traveling somewhere, time is money. So any diversion would cost him from the moment that he stopped. We are no busier than they were in those days. And too many times we think of people as beyond hope when in reality, they're just beyond the scope of what we want to invest in bringing them back to health. Are they really beyond hope like we think some of them are? Are they too far gone? Or is the cost of ministering to them more than we want to pay? It's so remarkable that this Samaritan found this guy lying alongside of the road, and he found him worth helping. And the reason that's amazing is the animosity between the Jew in the ditch and the Samaritan on the road is hard to fully imagine, even in our country. 
Now, the Jews of the day could be some pretty bitter folks. Some rabbis taught that a Jew was forbidden to even help a Gentile woman who was in distress giving birth. Because if they succeeded, all they did was help one more Gentile come into the world. And they thought of the Samaritans as worse than the other Gentiles. This Samaritan, though, looked and lived differently. And even though he was very different from the man by the side of the road, he decided on the spot that that one laying in the ditch was worth a substantial investment of his time and his financial resources. Verses 33 and 34, but as a, but a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was and he saw him and he had compassion. He went to him and he bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. There was no compassion without stopping and helping. doesn't say anything about the others walking by, having compassion, maybe taking a picture of the overturned car and posting it on Instagram, you know, hashtag please pray. No, he stopped, actually stopped. His compassion was linked to his activity. The level of care that he provided for this man is remarkable not only because this man would have been antagonistic towards him in any other setting. And he actually went and he poured in oil into the wounds that would have soothed the wounds and would have eased the man's pain. And he poured in the wine, which would have served as as an antiseptic to the man. And just when it felt like, man, he wouldn't have to do anything beyond that. He puts him on his own donkey and he walked on the road that he normally would have ridden on to a local inn where he spent the night. Verse 35 says, the next day he took out two denarii, took out two days wages, and he gave them to the innkeeper saying, take care of him and whatever you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Now we can read that and we think, wow, that's some neighbor. I mean, I might've stopped and asked if everybody was okay. The guy's laying in the ditch. I'm fine, I'm fine. I might've, you know, Subtly asked as he carried the groceries in, how are you? But I don't know that I would have really stopped and taken the time. And I surely don't know that I would have invested that much time or I would have derailed my own trip or I would have invested money. But this guy pours in oil and wine and puts a deposit down and tells the innkeeper, I'm coming back. What is this as a standard of neighborliness, if not what Jesus did for us? He finds us people who have been antagonistic towards him in our heart, and he applies the blood to kill the infection that is attacking our soul. And he pours in the oil, which softens us and resides within us in the Holy Spirit. And then he pledges, I will return. And he leaves us in the care of the Holy Spirit with a pledge to come again. With that example before us, Jesus asks the lawyer, so who's the neighbor? Who's the neighbor here? And the lawyer admits it's it's the one who showed him mercy. Jesus tells him, go and do likewise. It is the do likewise part of this story that is hard to walk out. Because it's costly in time and finances and emotion. And we're all busy and we're all stressed. But the payoff of it, of building neighborhoods who follow Jesus. Again, revisit the idea. What would What would have been being shut down in our homes? How differently would it have looked if our neighborhood could function like a church? The payoff of being a true neighbor 
in what Jesus is calling us to do is huge. To be a good neighbor in 2020 is to refuse to believe the lie that our neighbor thinks just like us and realize that it's a very different world across the street. But Jesus has the same affection for them that he does for us. It's to refuse to believe the lie that they may be telling us that everything is fine. That may have been the full extent of conversations you've ever had with your neighbor. And I'm in the same boat. We just moved into a brand new neighborhood and we're just in that. How are you? Fine. We're just in that discussion. I'm feeling stirred from the Lord. I've got to press into this because I'm responsible for these people at some level. To be a good neighbor in 2020 is to refuse to believe the lie maybe that they're so far gone that they're beyond Jesus's help. Jesus did everything it took to be a good neighbor. And then he looks at us and says, go and do unto them as I've done to you. I want to take a few minutes and just pray right now for our neighbors and our interactions with them. And I'm not being um, ethereal here. I'm, I'm literally talking about the people who live closest to you. I think we're going into a season in history when those relationships are probably going to matter more than they ever have before. And I want to make sure that all of us, myself included, are walking out uh, the full Jesus to our neighbors. So I'm going to pray. And, you know, maybe the Lord has, has pricked your heart and you're even thinking now of a neighbor that you've heard that line. I'm fine. I'm fine. Maybe you've even said it. Uh, I would encourage you as well to, to just unmute your mic and lead out in prayer. You, you, you serve the body when you lead in that way. So Father, we come and we ask that for those neighbors that we, our heart is pricked for today as we look at your example and how you loved us. And we know that you love them in the same way. Would you open doors for communication, Lord? Help us press back against uh, that lie of they're fine. We know better. We pray you would open doors for us to minister to them that you would build strong connections, Lord, and that neighbors would come to know you. And if they know you already, Lord, those connections would grow even stronger. We feel a weight of responsibility, of godly responsibility towards those that you love. Lord, just like in the beginning, we say we pray for our nation because you love this nation and you love people. and We love you. So for the same reason, we pray for our neighbors. And we ask us, we ask you to make us good neighbors in this season, You've been listening to the third cup of coffee, audio from thebridgekc.church. We hope to see you this weekend out at the barn at Riverbend.